Welcome back. We are live for another episode of Growing With My Fellow Growers. This is your host, Jack Greenstock, joined as always by an amazing panel. I'm going to throw it first off to Spartan Grown. Welcome back. Thank you, Jack. What's up, everybody? I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word. Or you can shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com. If you have questions, I'm, I do both organic and synthetic growing. So hopefully I could help you or point you in the right direction if you have a question. Always happy to have you. And next up, we've got Dr. MJ. Hey everyone, I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I am excited to be back on the show. I'll be able to stick around and look forward to uh, another fun panel with everybody. And thanks to the chat for showing up. Glad to have you back. Next up, Matthew Gates. Hey everyone, it's Matthew Gates, and I'm an IPM specialist. And if you want to find my content about uh, Pest management practices. You can find it on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, and you can find it on my Instagram at Sync Angel and on my Twitter at Sync Angel. And I have a video coming up uh, pretty soon about how aphids feed and how they locate, how they detect, locate, and recognize suitable host plants. And we'll be going over some of the interesting conversations about bricks for those who are curious. I look forward to that and uh, just want to welcome everybody and remind them to switch on over to the live chat so we can see all the messages. And uh, I'll throw out my email, jackgreensock47 at gmail.com for anybody who uh, doesn't do the social media thing. And next up, I want to pass it over to Aaron, the grower. What's up, Jack panel? Good to see everybody this week. Um, I am Aaron, the grower, atgacres.com, ATG, ATG Acres on Instagram and ATG Acres on YouTube. Um, Good to be back. I'm trimming up on some uh, some Baja Blast, some just really incredible weed that um, I don't know if anybody's ever seen. So check out my Instagram if you get a chance, and uh, you'll get to see that. It sounds delicious. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that as we get into the show, but I'm going to pass it next to a man who's now going by a new title, Pure Breeding. Welcome back, Kyle Breeder. Hey, everybody. Yeah, so if anybody that doesn't know via some posts I've done, uh, I changed my name for business purposes. Uh, it's a little more simplistic, more direct. Uh, I love it personally. It's a lot easier just to relay information and, and, and other scenarios. But yeah, if anybody's looking for any feminine seeds, that's what I specialize in. I have a website that's the letter P followed by breeding.com. And uh, I am looking into obtaining uh, another website, but I'll, I'll link to one, uh, one place. Um, but yeah, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, predicated breed. I'm sorry. Wow. See, I'm still into it. Uh, pure breeding. Uh, you can find me there and feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Well, uh, I'll be messing it up for a while. So, uh, <laughs> I think I still might say predicated breeding on like one of the things on your Instagram, but it'll all get updated soon. And uh, pbreeding.com is always good for both. So pea breeding is a good one for you and I'm happy to have you back. Uh, next up we've got Brandon Rust. Hey, what's going on everybody. Brandon Rust here. Uh, always, uh, good to be on the, the panel along with all the rest of the panelists. Um, you can find me on Instagram at rust.brandon. You can also find a link to my company, Bukashi Earthworks and my farm that I co-own with my partners, Black Label Organics. Glad to have you back. And last, but certainly not least, especially this week, because we've got a little surprise announcement. The American one. 
he's finding his mute button, but it's building the suspense. Yeah, <laughs> man, my, my mute button's getting stuck. <clears throat> Sorry about the delay. Um, Jack, everyone on the panel, good to be here. I'm glad to see everybody here. We have a full panel. Everyone in chat, I'm glad to see you showing up. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get right to it. It's good to be here. Glad to have you back. And uh, I just wanted to maybe throw it off first with something that Dr. MJ might like to talk about. Um, I don't know if anybody else has some topics in mind, and I'm making sure that we don't have anybody else trying to join us this week. Um, but I just was reminded uh, myself to use my phone as a PPFD meter the other day because I was like, you know what? My plants are starting to foxtail a little bit. Like my light be a little might my light might be a little bit too close to the plants. Start to notice some foxtailing. So I break out my phone. I use the Doggo apps uh, light meter for Android. And uh, my grow has done a video on it and shown side by side his testing with uh, like $500 meter and shown that it's fairly comparable, at least for a home grower's perspective. And there's also another it, one for the Does iPhone, that work so. on Android now? Because before it didn't. And even Migro said it wasn't as shaky. Well, the one I think a lot of people looked over, I'll show, I'm going to share a screen. There's uh, two videos. He has one that's for iPhone. I think that works better for iPhone, but I think you have to put a piece of paper over the sensor. And then the, the one Android one is, um, it works just fine without any modification. With and no paper? Right? All, no paper. Okay. I didn't know that. You don't have I've to put a, a diffuser. I've got a, I've got downloaded on my phone. I just haven't tried it yet. Yeah, I mean, my comment about that is I've had less success using the phone meter apps than Migro seems to have had. Um, I have not tested that one. I was testing um, the Corona app. Um, and even sort of with all the different settings, I couldn't get a reliable results across different fixtures. One of the issues is they're all measuring brightness. They're not actually measuring photons. They're not counting photons. They're measuring lux um, and then converting that into PPFD. And in order to successfully convert that, you need to know the color temperature of the spectrum. Um, and there's just a lot of room for, for error. So I think you can get pretty close. I think in certain situations um, that would be helpful. You know, measuring light, measuring LED light is sort of notoriously difficult in a grow space to begin with. So um, my argument about a lot of these things has been for a while, it's better to test lights in a controlled situation, know what you're dealing with, and then base it off of those metrics. Um, for example, the reflective walls make a huge difference to the amount of light that reaches the canopy. And if you're standing there with one of the walls open, taking a measurement, it's not gonna be accurate. So you have to at least like close things up and, and recreate the, the exact setting. Um, but I don't know, I'm, I, I haven't come across a phone app that I felt comfortable sort of telling people this would be reliable regardless of the lights that you're testing or sort of the position that they're in. Because it also makes a big difference whether the sensor is getting well, it depends on how it's measuring. And for the LUX sensors, it really doesn't. For the LUX sensors, they're measuring brightness and converting it. And as long as you're doing a conversion, um, meaning you know your color temperature, and... Um, it's still got to be better than guessing. 
I well, mean, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Here's 3,500K. Maybe not. Maybe it's the same as guessing. It's, in my opinion, it's <laughs> I mean, not. it's so, tough, man. I was getting really unreliable measurements with, with the Corona app. And if I didn't have a PPFD meter alongside of it, I wouldn't have known necessarily um, sort of how far off the, the various measurements were. And eventually, after tweaking some things and setting some things, I was able to get it to match up um close enough and then i put it under a different light and it was totally different again so like if you have a, a ppfd meter and you can calibrate it but otherwise it's, it really felt like wow if, if people are gonna actually go on this i'm not entirely sure it's gonna be accurate enough um now you could get they should be getting better with this. And if you know um, data about your light, the, the specific color temperature of your light, it can be a lot easier to do the conversion. Yeah, so in my case, I'm using a 3500K as my base. Um, mm -hmm. And when he did the conversion, it's uh, Lux, which you are correct. And he gives the mathematical equation. It's like divided by 10 or 100. I can't remember. You just take off a few zeros and you could tell once you do it a few times, like what the range that you're looking for is like 2000 is going to be like 200,000 or uh, 20,000, something like that. And um, when you hover the phone in certain areas across the canopy, like in the case that I'm growing right now, um, Amy Aces, it just kind of, I maybe vegeted a little bit too long. And one of the, the very top cola got a little bit too close to the light. I couldn't yeah. move it up any higher. I was super copying it. And I did actually because I took the reading after I noticed there was some foxtailing on that one and some of the buds have the ability to pull it down a little bit and bring it from what was getting 2000 PPFD to uh, 1100 PPFD. Yeah. Just by a small adjustment without having to move the light at all. And in my opinion, I think that the plant's doing a lot better now because I had that not many home growers are going to invest 500 into the light meters that he's using. No, I, I, yeah, that's not the my point. Was, I, mean, I don't really he, use my sensor in my own grow. Um, I, I set my light and my grow based on the test data for the fixture that I, I'm using. And uh, I do that ideally too, but I think there's also like LEDs over time that do burn out. So like maybe you can run it a little bit closer after two years of running the light. I think there's some variables, but like in this case, it was not a planned event. So ideally, that's an interesting comment. Of inches away. You're right. They're going to reduce the light. Um, a little bit through time, right? The LEDs become, I mean, they don't really burn out, but yeah, essentially burned out. They become less efficient. Um, but if you then take that as an opportunity to lower your light to maintain the same maximum PPFD, and this is the thing that I keep coming back to when I keep testing lights, is that the, the efficient hanging height is somewhat higher than the minimal hanging height for almost every light. And certainly for, for lights that are a little bit underpowered, that, that's even more true because those edge values get really low if you hang that light too close. So the overall usable PPF, like the amount of light that reaches the canopy doesn't really change that much based on how high the light is above the canopy. Um, what changes is the distribution and you can get a lot more light in the sort of in the hot spot, but it's almost always at the expense of the light around the periphery. So if I was in, a, in like a three by three tent with a three by three light and that light started to degrade through time, I don't think that it's the right call is to, to set it closer and closer and closer to the canopy. I would keep it at the same height because you still want the distribution, even though the usable PPF is like dropping off through time. Unless you're going to add light to that space. 
it's a good point. I just wanted to mention something that I was showing kind of in the background, just for the yeah. people that are listening to the podcast, that it also showed 4,000 Kelvin conversions and also showed HPS conversions for the Doggo app. And this was the other video that I found from Migro. And I think this might be the Corona app that you were mentioning, but um, he measured it again against a $500 sensor, but he's also just recently measured it against a $250 sensor. And he's also measured it against like $30 sensors on Amazon. So I think like whatever people's level of comfort, this is the cheap home bro. I just like to give people the options. Most people already have a cell phone. So like Spartan said, it's just, in my opinion, it's better than guessing. If you get yeah. at least the proper app and you know how to make the adjustments for it, as he describes properly in these two videos, I just wanted to show these off because so many times in DMs, I've actually recommended this to people and had it, um, diagnosed that they were giving either way too much or way too little light and it at least is able to get them in the ballpark in my opinion and i've seen it have a lot of success at helping not only their grows bounce back but my own i one of my testers for the velvet punch i was like what was your you know ppfd roughly if you could guess and they were also uh using cob leds running a little bit probably too much ppfd and um it made me go check my own grow because i was like hey you know i haven't checked in a little while might as well figure it out and uh, it was just a good insight for me. And I, I thought it was a nice little way to start off the uh, show to give some people at least a, a free option. And there's also, like I said, he gives um, Migro on his uh, channel. I don't have these pulled up right now for reference, but he gives a few other options like the, um, I think they're also Lux meters with conversions, but um, I think they're like $30 options or something like that. So it's I would a, say that it's better to go with a, a if you're going to get a cheaper meter, it's better to go with a Lux meter and run a conversion than it is to get a cheap PPFD meter. Um, simply because the cheap PPFD meters, uh, they're not going to be as accurate um, because they're not going to measure the low angle light. They're only going to measure the light that's coming straight at the sensor. They're basically designed, they work well in the sun when the sun's like a million miles away and it's like a single point in the sky and all the light's coming at it from that angle. But in our grow tents, the light, there's a lot of low angle light that's coming reflected off the walls. And those cheaper PPFD sensors are not designed to accurately measure those low angle photons. Um, and so it, it's really the, the LOX meters still do receive the light from those photons. And so they, you still will sort of factor that in. Um, it, it's also less. And that, that's one of the issues that makes all these conversions a little bit lower when you're dealing with um, a reflective space. And, and that's the cosine correction of low angle light. Um, those low angle photons affect photosynthesis, assuming they hit chloroplasts, they, they affect photosynthesis just as much as a photon that's coming straight down. But unless the sensor is adjusting for them, it, it feels to the sensor like a much lower hit. So it's not lighting up the, the locks as much. It's not getting measured as, as hard of a hit for the, the PPFD sensor. Um, so they undercount those low angle photons relative to what your plant is going to experience. Um, these are sort of always issues. I, you know, I'm always torn. I don't, I totally agree that I don't think most growers need to invest in really expensive sensors. Like I said, I have a really expensive sensor and I very rarely use it in my own grow to sort of set or adjust my lights. I think one of the issues is a lot of growers are under the impression that they should try to get their lights sort of as close as they possibly can um, to maximize performance. And generally that's, that's probably not the case. I think we're probably pushing them too much. 
Um, you should certainly get lights that are appropriately sized for the, the grow space that you have. Um, and, you know, there's lots of sources for that, but I try to be one of them in terms of like how much space will a particular fixture light up and how high should you generally run it. But um, at that point, if you're in a tent with a single light, you're not talking about adding or subtracting light or you're not like your light is an overpowered one case where people really benefit from PPFD meters potentially is if they have too much light for their space and they're forced to dim it. Um, but if you have the right light for the right space, I, I really don't see much need to invest in the PPFD meter. You just need good knowledge about how to run your light. Or even if like, for example, I know a lot of people run a lot of the lights that you've reviewed so they can go and watch your video and know yeah. roughly exactly how much it is. And like what uh, you and Migro have pointed out with the Apogee meters is kind of like the top of my microphone. The light can hit it from multiple angles, which for a grow space is relative uh, or, you know, it's it makes sense to have that ability. It actually gives it a better performance than like a flat cell phone would be just taking in light from basically one point. I can notice right. when I like move the phone from this angle to that angle, it can go from like a 300 PPFD change just from that small adjustment. Well, that's what the diffusers do. So there's two different ways to build a diffuser onto your cell phone camera. You just put a piece of paper down. That's the, the cheap way. That just distributes the light that's hitting the lens. The better way to build a diffuser, and they sell these because there's another cell phone app that sells you a diffuser to go along with it. That's like a little dome that sits over the top of, of the camera. And that little dome is more like the top of the microphone, right? Where it's catching more of those low angle, those low angle photons. And they're going to light up the dome just as much as the, the photons from the top. So that is certainly one way to improve the, the efficiency of the lux meter. Um, that you'd be sort of building with your camera. Very good point. And I think uh, we've definitely drilled some uh, 20 minutes, I think, so far on the light topic and intros. But Matthew in the chat mentioned that he has another topic that we could get to. And um, unless anybody else has more thoughts on the lighting, I would like to pass it over to Matthew. I had a mechanical engineering question about LED lights that could be really quick, potentially. Throw it out okay. there. Um, because you had mentioned like this, just the fact that like, you know, entropy, the, the, the lights as you use them over time, they wear and they wear. And um, I just wanted to get just sort of a hot take. What would you say would be a, I know it's context-based, but what would you say would be a, like a good longevity for a light, for an LED light? Well, it, it, the rate of degradation is going to depend on how much power is being driven through the diodes. So if you have a light with uh, a lot of top rated diodes at run at a, a fairly low current, then they're not going to degrade very quickly at all. If you have a cheaper light that has cheaper and fewer diodes that are essentially being overpowered, then they're going to degrade more quickly. Um, so it really does depend. That's one of the advantages actually of, of getting a larger fixture and running it dim is that it will degrade slower because you're running, you're drawing, they're driving the, the diodes at a lower wattage. I think there's one more thing. To me. There's one more factor that you have to figure, especially business-minded wise, and that is as quickly as the LED lighting seems to be advancing. I would say anything past five years, you're gonna be replacing those fucking lights anyway. So who cares past five years and we're already there. 
That's certainly been true over the last five years. If you yeah, bought well, LEDs as a commercial grower five years ago, you need to probably upgrade them at this point because of the efficiency but, gains. But going I'll say this forward, to make economically. Go ahead, Tom. Uh, yeah, efficiency is what you were going to say, because I was going to say, if you're already saying the plants could get too much light, why would you need better LEDs, but you get better efficiency? And the one thing I would say about the lux meter thingy, if you have multiple areas with different kind of lighting, like in veg, it might be useful for, because at, at one point when I switched my bulbs from those fluorescents to LEDs, I burnt my clones up pretty quickly. And uh, I didn't quickly realize that was why. But yeah, so that's just, I'll add that in there. Yeah, whenever okay, so I can, good to measure. Sorry, I go can go to my topic now for... I have one more thing before we go on. I'm sorry to oh, drag please it on. Do. Please do. So I found a video that I wanted to reference because it was actually more degradation to LEDs than I thought, but I'll say this as a preface, we're comparing it to HIDs and HID bulbs. You could really replace every six months, definitely every year need to be replaced. LEDs don't need to be replaced at one year. They definitely run two very well, maybe three up to five for sure. Like Spartan's got some that have been running for five and they're still growing plants. Yeah. So I would even say longer than that. I mean, in terms of just the degradation, right? It depends on what you're starting with. It depends on what your goals are. Um, like several things, but you know, the only data that we really have on this is a test that, that Shane did for micro um, and every single manufacturer that I've talked to about it contests those results. And they say that, that it can't possibly be the degradation rate that he tested um, and that they feel that they have their own data that, that demonstrates that. So it, they definitely degrade. I think that we really kind of need better data in order to understand more about sort of the rate and how, how different um, diodes driven at different power in different kinds of settings um, you know, does it matter if they're being run just 12 hours a day or, or for longer, things like that? We don't really I, know. I think that might be one of the factors that maybe messed up his results because I think he was running them 24 hours a day for 6,000 hours straight. And when you do that, it's different than running 12 on, 12 off, 12 yeah. on, 12 off. So I think his results may be skewed on yeah, the They certainly are going to run hotter side. after a while, right? And they're going to hit that. They're going to be running for a longer time at that peak temperature without cooling down so yeah well, that's gonna have an effect let's follow the money i guess he is a salesman he needs to sell lights so he'd be more to find the data that says lights are going to be burning out quicker so even if he's saying oh my lights will burn out quick that means you have to buy a new one every so often so he'd be more inclined to want you to buy them more quickly it's like nutrient companies you know giving you a dose that's higher than you actually need even though it's counterintuitive because it's not going to like help your grow it helps them sell know, more nutrients I understand that thought process, but on the other end of it, you would think people wouldn't want to buy him if, if he's going to come out and say that they're not going to last long at the same time. So I think it's a wash, really. Uh, he was careful, right, not to just say it about his own lights, but he did include his own lights in that. I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think those, I don't want to start trying to crawl inside people's heads and, and motivation. <laughs> yes. And it goes from good to like still yeah. pretty good 208 to 199, 201 right. to 191. 193 to 178. Like these are all still better than HPS, even a Mars. Yeah. And that's really not the degradation that we'd be. We'd want to know what happened to the usable PPF. He's talking about the usable photon efficiency there. 
which is related to the usable PPF, but it doesn't really tell you how many photons are lost and what that does to the average PPFD in the, the grow space. And whether that means that there's now the corners are really falling below the threshold that you wanted to keep them at or not. Um, those are the, the questions we need to know. Be, do you, that's interesting as I think about that. Do you think it would be um, possible spectrum changes then? Yeah. As they uh, degrade? Minor, though. I mean, I, I don't think you're going to be dealing with major spectrum changes. But to the extent that you have different diodes in a spectrum mix, yeah, the, the spectrum will shift slightly as different diodes to sort of lose their performance at different rates. That's interesting. That's a good point. I think if they're all uniform, though, if you have like a 3,500K, it'd be more like a dimming effect. And if you dim a 3,500K, it's still 3,500K. Yeah. 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%. And here's an interesting little nugget for you. Every light that I have tested the dimmer on, it dims evenly across the canopy everywhere. Um, I wasn't sure whether that would be true before I started testing them, but it's not just that sort of the, the maximum PPFD drops off by a certain percentage, but across the canopy everything drops off by a similar percentage and the the total usable ppf drops off by a similar percentage so um it would be a similar thing like that and we would expect that the distribution of the loss essentially to be fairly even across the canopy how about the know. penetration is that a factor uh, losing no penetration is probably the most misused sort of thing Sorry. about lights <laughs> people talk about it all the time but it's not really a thing Okay. Um, it's a thing that some light manufacturers talk about to try to sell lights by saying that their light penetrates better than other lights. I think references to sex like that sell products in general. But um, no, light, we're, we're dealing with density is what's important with light. Um, it is true that different spectra of light interact with things differently. So like leaf tissue and some light will pass through that leaf tissue and hit underlying leaves more than others. But that's not why we're selecting the spectra to grow under. Um, and it's not something that you would want to sort of adjust about a light or get a light with like extra penetration or something. What we're concerned about with light, whether it's LED or HPS or from the sun, is density, the density of photons. Um, how many photons are striking each square meter or square centimeter or whatever it is per second. Um, yeah. The reason I uh, actually brought this up was I was on a hike the other day and I brought out that meter just for curiosity and put it on like my forehead. Yeah. And at 9 a.m., 2,600 motherfucking par. Uh, and like See, so that's not that's not and I know it's not exactly it's not accurate and that's off by at least 25 percent and probably more the highest PPFD I ever measured under direct sunlight in Los Angeles was just over 2000 um, and that was like on a day that the sun was strong that was at noon it was direct sunlight um, and you can get maybe up to 2100 2200 um, like the brightest sun on the brightest day um but if you're getting 2600 at 9 a.m that's just showing that your meter is not super accurate for the sun i would say yeah for sure yeah and, uh, matthew i think um you could take over from here sorry no no <laughs> that was no, fun, no. fun. I, I, I always I like talking, talking about lights i'll shut up now 
Go no, back. No, no, I, I think we wrapped it up though. I, I yeah, know, we did. I didn't we want did. to cut it off too soon. But I, I was definitely... interested. I was still interested in the conversation. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because um, I was because I had done with uh, with Aaron. We had done that uh, insect vision uh, video, and uh, I really took a a look like back at what I know about insect vision what anybody knows at least because it is very complex and so light became a really interesting factor of that and um you know in like a lot a lot of insects can actually distinguish between colors in the way that human vision can so that's interesting thing about light um but what I wanted to talk about was actually the sort of a bit of a topic teaser for that video I was talking about uh, about how aphids try to find plants because I know a lot of people in the cannabis space are uh, either annually or perennially dealing with um, cannabis aphids, rice root aphids, but also sometimes other aphids like black bean aphid. Um, and they always ask me like, how is it possible or, or why are they able to do this? And um, without going into a bunch of detail that I will in the video, I do know that contentious as it is, people people say that uh, plants will be avoided by things like aphids if their sugar content is high. And I've been seeing a lot more traffic and, and conversation about that. So I, I felt like it'd be a fun thing to sort of um, address. I have a PDF here. Actually, I actually have several PDFs open at the moment because I'm combing through them for more detailed quotes and information. Thanks, Jack. Um, let me share that screen. I still haven't figured out the uh, thing that potent Ponic Steve was trying to <laughs> tell me. I've like gone through all of the features on Zoom and like not even on the actual Zoom call that we're in right now, but on the little background thing where it says like return to meeting, schedule, uh, chat, all these things. I can't figure out how to give you guys like all permission to share screen. So in the meantime, I can just make you host if you want to share screen. I appreciate it. So this is from, um, oh, was somebody going to say something? No, no worries. I was going to say, I think if you click on the participants, you might be able to adjust uh, some settings that way, but sorry to interrupt. Oh, no problem. So this is from, this is from a document called uh, the nutritional physiology of aphids. This is by um, a very well-known professor of um, toxicology and entomology, uh, Angela Douglas. And um, she's currently at the Cornell uh, university and she studies insect physiology and toxicology. Um, so this is right up that topic, kind of the nitty gritty questions of like, what nutrients do certain insects want and what quantities and how are they able to do what they do? And, and basically this can lead to ways of us controlling what they do through like IPM techniques and things like that. Um, and if, any, if anyone wants, um, this document or some of the other documents. Another really good one is, um, uh, well, <laughs> these are a few other ones too that I've been looking at, but this one's pretty good as well. Uh, honeydew sugar is an osmoregulation of the P. aphid, uh, Cytrocyphum pisum. And I'll go over an example in here too, but basically what I wanted to call attention to is that uh, in a lot of aphid digestion and diet, um, research, which we've had for about four decades at least now, in, in a really particularly sophisticated way, I would say. Um, 
we, we've learned a lot about how aphids and other insects feed. And I just think it's really humorous, I guess, that some people think that, um, that the bricks content in plants is like going to have this like really adverse effect towards herbivorous insects because although photosynthate does um, power and is very important for the health of a plant in that it powers a lot of all of its processes, its metabolic processes and the secondary metabolites and other sorts of things that will uh, defend itself against insects. That is all true. But um, the sugar content itself is something that I've seen said that will like cause aphids to like rot on the plant itself or that they'll shrivel up because they can't digest the sugar. And I guess it's those particular claims that I find sort of uh, at odds with this research. Here's a diagram. Um, this is figure six in the uh, document. They're talking about how here essentially um, in the, the P aphid, I'll, I'll read, I'll just actually read the figure. It says, feeding response of P aphids is Cithrosiphum pisum to variation in concentration of dietary sucrose. Eight replicate final instar Acterus larvae. So this is the larvae that will, there are aphids that uh, turn into a winged form and those that do not, this is one of those that do not, were caged individually for 48 hours to diets containing between 0.2 and one mole of sucrose. For those who don't know, uh, one mole of sucrose is like 342 grams of sugar. And uh, usually in concentration, we do this in, in like liters or, or some fraction of that. Uh, which, a lot of sugar. It's a lot of sugar, right? It's um, basically if, I mean, under the white, right uh, conditions, um, uh, a one liter is like about a thousand grams of water, as I understand it. So that's 342 grams of sugar dissolved into 1000 grams of water. And for those who know, bricks content is a concentration of um, a dissolved solid, in this case, sugar, sucrose by mass. And that's exactly what this is. So 342 grams of sugar in 1000 grams of water is like 34 bricks. Like, do you want to check my math? Is that true? Does that math checks out for everyone who's uh, following along? Uh, did I make any sort of uh, error Sounds there? right to me, but I'm not, I'm not confident. I don't know if uh, grams or, or milligrams is for the liter, but you're probably right if you think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so if I'm wrong, please tell me in chat. But that's how, I'm, that's how I understand it to be. So, so here, can you see my mouse? Yes, I can. But you hopefully can, the right? chat can. I, I, can. I definitely can. Okay. Uh, well, basically, you can just see here along here on the on B. So A is just the volume of diet ingested, right? Um, so this is how many like, and this is in microliters. So this is how many microliters of um, of a uh, phloem is digested. Or uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, basically, on the bottom we have the sucrose concentration and how many nanomolars of sugar or sucrose were uh, imbibed or taken up. And one mole of sugar is right here. So what they're, what they're showing in this diagram is that actually aphids love sugar. Aphids will feed for longer periods of time. It doesn't show it quite in this diagram, but it is the case that when sugar levels are lower in plants, aphids will, will uh, um, 
they'll go through compensatory feeding. They'll feed actually for longer periods of time at a particular point on the plant in order to get more sugar into their bodies. And they use enzymes to break it down, mainly um, glu uh, glucosidase and uh, specifically alpha glucosidase and uh, sucrase. Uh, so they're very, they're very, very good at this. And they can even withstand sort of the BRICS levels of like, you know, one mole of sugar um, by concentration. That's, that's massive. That is like 34 BRICS of sugar. And in artificial diets, uh, like in this one here, in this paper, uh, they go over this pretty well. And I'm not going to like go over the whole thing. I don't want to like bogart our time here. Um, but they go, they, they, they test the sort of osmotic pressure of a bean plant and um, also the, an artificial dye that they get. And uh, in, this, in this figure here, they're looking at the osmotic pressure of the, the hemolymph of a pea aphid. And that's like their blood basically. So essentially as a dietary sucrose concentration increases, the, the osmotic pressure does not. And this is because they have the enzymes that break them down, they break down those sugars. If they couldn't do that, um, what people say about aphids shriveling on plants would be absolutely true. Because if they, if they didn't have that capacity, um, the, the osmotic pressure would basically pull out the water out of their gut lumen and they would indeed sh uh, shrivel up. But uh, they, either, they process most of the sugar they feed on and other things like proteins and amino acids. Uh, they actually don't rely on amino acids for the most part because they have bacteria in their bodies like Buchnera and Serratia, which I'll go over in the video, uh, that basically biosynthesize those amino acids, especially the essential ones for them. So they don't actually need those things. So when people try to control that in their plants, it doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, according to the kind of the research that we that we have on the subject. And again, if anyone's interested in this research and would like to go over it themselves, I do in the video, but I would love to pro uh, provide it for people who are curious. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to go over this. This is just a, a small example of that. And they even like go over like how the mouth parts are formed in the other one. This is the um, uh, nutritional physiology of aphids. Is it help if I back you up right now and say I've had some really 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 healthy plants that I had like a really tight IPM schedule on and one day I found one aphid and the next day I found like a hundred and the next day I found like a thousand <clears throat> and um, I'm pretty sure the bricks was through the roof on those plants because they were some of the healthiest plants I've ever seen so I just no, have apparently my... not apparently nothing you produce if you have bugs on <laughs> is healthy and also apparently even suitable for human consumption Right. Which, uh, I don't know about that. I got your back but, on this one, man. Bricks, bricks <laughs> really doesn't, I mean, maybe there's certain pests that, that high bricks can help manage, but aphids ain't one of them in my experience. Well, I would never see I, I think this is just a correlation causation rift here. I think that high bricks plants are generally healthier and therefore they're, they're generally healthier. And that becomes, it sort of conflated with they must be able to, to fend off pests or other things. Yeah. Um, there are certainly some pests, and Matthew, you could talk more about this, that, that are able to better attack weaker, struggling plants. Um, but 
yeah, the idea that the sugar itself is going to become too much for the insects, I think has been, I mean, this growing cannabis and the industry of sort of supplying advice about growing cannabis is full of things like this that are, are based more on myth than on science. And I would even go as far to say that I totally agree with people who say that higher bricks plants are more healthy. I think that's like almost assuredly true from a point of like gathering the resources in the photosynthate and using it to feed the microbiome in the soil yeah. um, and also all the processes that they go over. And so I think you're right. Um, and that's why I was very careful with how I described this, that like that part I totally agree with. It's just weird to me that people would say that like the, the plant, the, the insects couldn't actually feed on the sugar. That just sort of doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's uh, a breakdown in explanatory models. So people recognize certain kinds of phenomena and then they, they build. We all do this. It's part of just I being, do this, being. Sure. we build a model to explain that phenomena to ourselves. And then we apply that model to interpret other novel phenomena. Um, sometimes that works out just fine. Other times we make heinous and erroneous errors in the process i i think that there's a couple of misconceptions that have been uh, about bricks that have come from a couple of different sources right so tip there are some um there are some industries that do test bricks on fruit to try to see their sugar levels uh but that's not you know really what we're what most people aren't even reading bricks properly if they're using a refractometer um, because really what they're doing is they're grinding up leaf tissue that also contains cell vacuole fluid it contains all kinds of other things not just what would be available but also things that were stored and so that in itself isn't a good measurement and i know this because that's how i used to do it until i understood the data that sap analysis um lets you have and high bricks is kind of a myth because plants will go through stages throughout an entire day where those levels fluctuate and what you do Absolutely. what you want to see is you want to see bricks levels just over the the total uh sugar level because it, on sap it shows you both and that means that the sugar is being complexed or it's being utilized. If it was vice versa, you know the plant isn't properly photosynthesizing. So when when we're looking at uh, cannabis and and plants and, and things like maybe like grapes or uh, cranberries, and we're talking bricks, I think we're probably talking different things. And then also when we're talking about using something like a refractometer versus using sap analysis. And what these what these like data points core actually correlate and correspond to, there's uh, there's kind of some confusion. So, bricks, your levels of complex sugars will will vary throughout the day because what's happening is the plant is always in real time pulling nutrient from the soil and it's metabolizing things. It's it's creating proteins it's creating all these different chemical compounds and it's also releasing um photosynthates and root exudates into the soil you know to compensate for things that it needs so 
And basically, it's a useless um, measurement. Just like when you go get your cholesterol tested, it's a one-time snapshot of your body, which is totally ignorant to the changes Dude, that are totally. constantly happening. I, I, my I, refractometer I meter is collecting what? dust on my shelf. I, yeah, I'm, I'm with, a with you guys. meter for cannabis testing is probably not really the way you want to go. Um, but even uh, because that's just not giving you a proper data. I mean, you could have, it gives you a data point, right? That you could use to measure what that is for that particular thing, whatever that thing is, I guess, total, you know, let's say you were taking a certain mass of material and you were mushing it up, right? You're not getting sugars and just sugars. And you're not just getting carbohydrates. You're get, getting everything that's in that tissue, everything that was in those, the, the, the vacuoles, everything that was uh, stored away in an unavailable form. So you're just getting an overall reading of stuff, you know, but you can't be like, what is this stuff? As opposed to some other type of data points where you could say, Hey, this correlates to the buildup and complex, you know, because bricks also correlates to uh, molybdenum in plants because molybdenum, uh, it, it, cre- it it's a, the, a cofactor in the creation of proteins because it's responsible for the nitrodase, uh, nitrogen reductase um, uh, pathway. And so um, having the bricks where you're getting all of this energy and all these things are storing up in the complex proteins is correlated in that way. And it, it's complex. I don't know how to, uh, I'm just, I'm not seeing it in my head. Like I normally do at this moment, but when you're looking at it from a data set point and you're able to correlate it to something else, that's, it makes it easier to be able to say, Hey, this is what this is doing. Um, as far as insects go, I agree with Matt, man. You, the, the trick to, to insect management is just proper IPM protocols. Like, and you have to, you can't like, Oh, we can't do it today. It's like, no, you have to do your shit. You have to maintain it. If you don't, it doesn't matter how healthy your fucking plants are. If there's something introduced into there, you know, nature finds a way. That's what it does. It's funny. I think the uh, whole like statement that like, if you get to a certain bricks that insects won't pet bother you, is sort of like uh, wishful thinking of a gardener. Like, oh, if I can only achieve this bricks level, then I won't have to worry about pests. And I just but think I so used- many people have found out the opposite. And uh, yeah, and I was one of the people that was saying that, you know, because I wasn't having issues and stuff at the at that particular point when I started doing that. But as I started, you know, being more uh i guess using methods that are already proven and tested in other agriculture industries and core and being able to correlate and kind of adapt that data to the cannabis which is a much more higher nutritional needs and then using different you know the different medias that aren't in conventional agriculture you know because we're not dealing with soils we're dealing with something completely different so trying to apply both the the mechanics of uh, uh, the soil chemistry and then also the internal chemistry of the plant is like two different realms that we're looking at independently. And in the, in the case of bricks, we're not looking at just basically sugars that are being, comp- uh, we're not just looking at how much sugar is there. We're looking at 
all the times of days where those where that bricks level will drop because the plant is utilizing those because they're 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 going through some type of internal process to be utilized in another form you know in a in a manner that's going to benefit the plant whether it's the construction of proteins hormones if it's creating enzymes or again you know sending the photosynthates i really like how you articulated that yeah i definitely agree with everything brandon said and i just also thought it was interesting breeder steve who's grown a lot indoor outdoor greenhouse he's grown mostly in columbia right now and he always jokes or kind of comments i think truthfully saying he feels like the pests go after his sweetest plants like the tastiest herb or like some of his favorite strains tend to be the ones that the pests gravitate towards all grow in the same way all using the same ipm and the same field plots certain plants tend to have way more pests on them so i think even like the terpene profile or other aromatics off of that plant could either repel or attract certain pests depending on where you are and what is around so uh, there's a lot to consider with it, but I do agree with what Brandon was saying. Proper IPM is just your best bet. No matter what, we shouldn't just kind of rely or hope on uh, nature to be right uh, when we can be proactive to avoid any of the more likely pests in your area. I think the only final comment I want to say is that like uh, when I hear these claims, it's almost not always, but I would say there's a, there's a high frequency that somebody will follow up with saying, and so if your plants aren't healthy, like, like you're not basically there. It's almost like they're saying like, Oh, you're a bad grower. Almost. I feel like that, like you are, you are not producing healthy plants because they're not uh, a certain level of sugar content and health as a concept, you know, I don't want to get too like philosophical, but uh, you got to quantify that word. Um, what do you mean when you like when people say that health, what do they mean when they're saying it, you know, and um, like in different environments, I think different compositions or genotypes, we, we even know with adaptation, right? Like in a way you could, you could make that abstraction that you're not actually healthy in certain contexts, but you are in others. Um, you know, and there's a, there's a, there's a good like kind of way to, to think about this. If you took someone who was maybe, um, real tall and skinny and that was their body type right that's what that was what they expressed and then you kept and you put that person on an artificial like um program for like steroids right they could potentially get really really big but it doesn't necessarily mean that those things are maximized in health you could take the same person and put them um on the things, you know, what's good for them and a healthy to try to do the same thing, but you may not always get the same result either. You know? Yeah. So maybe. Oh yeah. Not to interrupt, but like maybe some plants, like when they get those photosynthate, uh, you know, maybe even some cultivars are more resistant to some pests and they're able to use that energy and, and like achieve that, you know, better resistance, but that's gene based, for example. Well, so it's, we know that we know that's true yeah. because you know there. I mean, there was just a peer reviewed research paper that was released not too long ago, and and I just saw it floating around IG, and it was about the powdery resistance gene, and they aptly named it the PM1 gene, powdery mildew gene, and so they they've identified that that genetic marker that will have a resilience characteristic 
characteristic for a certain type of you know powdery uh powdery mildew that's a good point and then like then there's a reverse that i've talked about before susceptibility genes um in plants uh allow them to are exploited you know maybe it's the best way to put it is that those genes have effects and those effects are exploited by um like mildew locus o uh, and, and mildew locus o is conserved in a lot of plants some 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 of those genes there are various genes um, in that family and so yeah. pathogens like powdery mildew or fusarium will exploit those genes to ingress the plant on the same but people ask the question well why do they why are they not like you know gotten rid of if, up and down regulated that's part well, of the and these well, and these genes epigenetic thing right is that well, yeah the, but these genes in particular uh, the reason why they don't go away is because they have an alternative function which is to also help mediate interactions with like uh mutualistic fungi it's so, like do you think theoretically the, you could have you know genes for resistant resistance but that won't be really turned on until you have a certain type of parameter and set where the plant is going to have at least some level of oh, optimum health what what do you think because I know I that, like, I know that the genes can be up and down regulated depending on like certain, you know, conditions and they'll, you know, even though DNA can continually be replicated, it's not always perfectly replicated. And that's part of like that, that, that process. If we can maximize the functionality of those specific processes, can we essentially combat these issues just based off of the, the gene sequence? Sort of. So, I, I mean, like, uh, definitely reactions to stressors can cause genes to get expressed more, expressed less. Uh, you know, various events, various like interactions with the environment and other, um, you know, organisms can cause that sort of a thing to happen. Also, they genes like they are with cannabis. I mean, that's a triggers different genes to, to express. That's I wanted to, um, Speaking of powdery mildew, uh, Kyle Breeder is only going to be with us until uh, five o'clock here on the West Coast. So I believe we got a question from Kinder Grows who says, I've got an organic raised bed outside for vegetables and my cucumber plant is showing signs of powdery mildew. Any tips? Also, anything you would recommend for pests getting on the veg? So um, I, I just wanted to give Kyle a chance to jump in because he hasn't gotten a chance to talk at all during the whole show. And uh, if you have any thoughts on that, and then we could maybe pass it back to uh, Matthew. Or on the other question, Lou Grown uh, mentioned, do you have any tips? This was probably more apply applicable to Kyle. Uh, do you have any tips for environmental considerations when upgrading from a cheapo budget light that's too small for you in your grow space to a beefy light that maximizes your space, Kyle? Mm, that's an interesting question. Is he just trying to figure out, I mean, is he like, is there going to be more of a heat issue now because the light's bigger? Is that kind of what he's concerned about or? I think that's what they're presuming. Yes. Lou Grown, you could follow up uh, if you're still here with us. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, since, since I've started growing, I mean, I, I was starting with HPS, so I had to crank uh, uh, air conditioning pretty heavy for like 24 hours a day. But once I switched to LED, I mean, a lot of the LEDs don't really put off too much heat now. So um, it's not really a huge concern and you can kind of use that to your advantage, especially during winter. Um, but yeah, I would just, uh, I run like a little, uh, uh, 12,000 BTU um, air conditioner 
then I and it, it's uh, set it for like 74, 76. And I mean, it, it, my electric bill isn't really all that much jacked up. Um, you know, maybe it's, it varies, but it's really not all that much. I would definitely uh, invest in that. That's certainly helpful. Um, you know, and I just basically cool the outside air of the, because uh, I use tents, uh, my, uh, my residents. Uh, just, I just cool the outside air and then let the, and then basically it's push in pa uh, passive air from the, uh, not passive, uh, I basically have inline fans at the bottom of my tents on both sides that pump uh, the cool air from the room in. And then the, I have two inlines up top that uh, exhaust any of the air that's in the tent into carbon filters. And that's just basically what I run constantly. And I mean, you know, obviously for two reasons, it's good is it's always getting cool air from the room. And for two, uh, no matter, you could be basically in the room and you don't smell marijuana. Um, you know, and ironically, I'm in a uh, place right now where I'm not supposed to be growing, which is kind of shitty when it's, it's temporary. But uh, but yeah, I mean, if, I don't know if that helps him or not. Um, what'd you say? Was there a question about powdery mildew, Jack? The first one you had? Yeah, the first one. If you look in the Zoom chat, it's on there from Kinder Grows, but I'll reread it for anybody who didn't hear. It says Kinder Grows at Cheap Home Grow. I've got a organic raised bed outside for vegetables and my cucumber plant is showing signs of powdery mildew. Any tips, question mark. Also, anything you would recommend for pests getting on the veg is, is what they wrote. Well, some things I've learned from Matt, I'm sure Matt will have uh, more extensive knowledge on it, but uh, I've been using sulfur and water, man. That seems to work great. Um, you know, if he was indoors. Uh, I'll, agree boy, that. I'll agree yeah, with that. So I have a buddy that's had a problem indoors. So if this helps anybody, I know the question's not indoors. Uh, an ozone generator, because he kept he tried cleaning, bleaching, and everything, and it just wouldn't go away. Um, but he used an ozone generator. Uh, you know, there's they sell little ones for like 50 bucks, and that that apparently got rid of it. And that's uh, and he had it for like a year. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, so so yeah, but yeah, sulfur and waters that work for me. Uh, I kind of effed up and I went to a gene trader show and uh, I, somebody that I knew that was giving away clones there. I'm not going to name drop because people might know them, but uh, basically looked me dead in my eyes and told me that they're, they're, they're clean. And I knew the kid. So I like trusted them. It's like, yeah, they're clean hundred percent, dude. Well, I got PM uh, not that long, a couple months ago and uh, quite frustrating. So now what I got to do is um, basically I'm, I'm going to run the ozone, but at the same time, uh, sulfur and water uh, does wonders. You know, it, it kind of gets into the poorest parts of the plant. And, uh, you know, so what I'll do, though, is I'll, I'll I think, uh, you know, you, I think it's like a two week regimen. But what I'll do uh, at the very end, just to ensure is I'll actually scrape like an inch or two of dirt out of the pot. And then I'll dunk the whole plant into I'll get like a big like a 10 gallon bucket or five gallon bucket and do a soap and water. Uh, I'm sorry, sulfur water mixture. And I'll submerge the entire plant in that. And then that's like my final my final uh, stage of I actually introduce it back into the room that's completely cleaned out. Um, I don't know if that helps him, but yeah, sulfur and water. I'm sure Matt can touch on that a little later. But, uh, but yeah, I got to get going, you guys. Pure breeding, new name. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone remembers it. Hopefully, I remember it. But um, if you're looking for feminized seeds, I do have a website, pbreeding.com. I am looking into acquiring uh, purebreeding.com pretty shortly here. But um, yeah, reach out if anyone has any questions. I'm here. I love talking to you guys. Um, you know, so Kyle, yeah. don't trust yeah. anyone. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like ever. I know. That's well, what so I, what's, what's funny is I had it once before and it was a mistake because, uh, you know, I didn't know any better. And then I was like, all right, well, I'll never let that happen again. But then like this kid that like it's almost like one of you guys. Like I, like, I tried. I've done it. I know what you mean. I know what yeah. you mean. It was literally like one of you guys. Were like Kyle, Somebody like, said, don't even it. trust your mother. <laughs> don't even trust That's your right. family. Yeah, 
You got to treat it. You know what's even worse, man? Is I called the kid, right? I said, "Hey, man." I was like, "I got PM on the plant that you that you told me," and he was like. Well, obviously, I had it. What do you think was going to happen? And I was like, "What the? What do you mean? You oh, had it? Oh, <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, terrible." So, yeah, he so just got I moved. Like, I yeah, hope on he, your list of people. Right. And his, and his response was, uh, "Oh man, it's easy to take care of. I don't know why you're complaining so much." And it's like, dude, now my whole entire tent's like filled with that shit. I dropped that name. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, no. Nah. Like, if it's easy to take care it. of, why do I have it, dick? That's what I would have fucking said. Yeah, like, like you should have taken care of it before yeah. you gave it to me. Exactly. Right. Right. Basically, you just cost me a bunch of time and money and other stress that I don't need. But uh, but yeah, so everyone, don't trust anybody. <laughs> Matthew, before he goes, I have a question about Breeder Steve's technique. He says if you get it to 95 degrees for like, uh, I think it's like one day a week or maybe uh, once a day for like a week, it'll get rid of your PM is his theory and you can just run your lights without exhaust for like 15 minutes a day and then cycle them back on the plants typically don't have a lot of harm and he believes that it kills off pm so i'm curious your thoughts on that i heard you had to hit 120 or approximately for like a couple hours more temperature would make sense to me yeah i'm just quoting breeder steve okay so the 95 for an hour is for people who have anything plastic in there <laughs> oh yeah because <laughs> um, that'll melt create, for sure yeah and, yes. and a lot of like plastic around electrical wires there's shit to worry about in a commercial setting or maybe a greenhouse i can see hotter i was just saying for 15 minutes and he says do it i think like every day for a week or something like that but this is just his that's, claim that's part of the jungle boys sops is to do that uh at the end temperature after each crop yeah, but they have metal fans. i definitely agree with that after each shot yeah some uh yeah. Yeah, so turn it up to just turn it up to 200 degrees and everything will be dead. You're good to go. That's right. That's right. Well, that's what I was saying. They do that between runs, essentially, is they let their lights run and just cook the room at like 150, I think, is what they're... Oh, shit. I was kidding. That's crazy. But yeah, that'll just work. Put in, just put in like a, um, you know, just some sort of like plasma conductor or something, just x-ray beam, just hard x-ray beam everything. Yeah, we just uh, microwave, yeah. turn the whole room into a microwave, and like when no one's in there, blast it for 20 minutes. That's, hey, I'm, I'm inventing Look your hot that. pocket at the same time. Oh, there you go. Much does That's that. right. So right. what we do, what we do at work is we just shoot off this product called Procure, and it uh, smells like chlorine the next day, and everything is squeaky clean. Well, we got to wash the tables and shit, but I mean, the air is clean. I've had personal experience with Procure, and I would have to say I've, I've had good results. So I don't like to say... I don't like to make this as an endorsement or anything like this, but um, I just want to echo Spartan's words. What about your uh, results? You guys were using uh, ozonated water for my knowledge still, in the past. Did you stop? We use that for cleaning the tables. So when, we, when we're resetting the room, we'll uh, clean the tables with that. And, we're still and that's for that. people who don't know, they're adding an extra oxygen, O3, ozone, right? Essentially to the yes. water and it, it dissipates over time. So it's not dangerous. 20 minutes. Can... We get 20 minutes in a five-gallon bucket. You know, ozone's come up with me recently, too. People asking about using it for filtration instead of carbon filters. Um, it's it's true. I mean, but ozone is like one of the worst environmental pollutants at the, the sort of surface of the planet. Um, it's really important in the ozone layer. Um, but it's one of the primary components of smog. And I, I don't know, I couldn't get behind using uh, an ozone generator to filter the air. You know, um, if you're using ozone, earlier. yeah, no, I know, I know. If you're using ozone in the water, you're dissolving um, O3 into the H2O, um, just like we like to dissolve 
um, O2, dissolved oxygen into the uh, um, water. Do you, do you guys remember their uh, sharper image used to create, make this, um, it was like uh, supposed to make your, like clean your air. And it yeah, generated that's a, those are the things I'm talking about. Those ozone generators yeah, that say so, they clean the air. So they got sued, some class action lawsuit. Um, they got sued because it was like people were getting sick in, yeah. in near them. So I just want to put that as an asterisk. UVC uh, bulbs too. Those clean wands. Yeah, those stay out off, of the room when you're doing them. Yeah, those let definitely. off UV. Or not yep. UV. Um, they also let off ozone, I should have said. But yeah, they make they exhaust fan filters that are ozone generators. And they even advertise things like creates more ozone than any other fan or whatever. Um, and they warn you not to stand downwind from it um, and not to breathe it. Um, but it just seems... Yeah, I, I I don't know. All this ozone stuff just raised my my cackles a little bit. I don't think ozone is necessarily as safe as a lot of people think it is. Carbon filters work. Water. Carbon filters were great for air filtration. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would. Yeah, I don't like ozone in the air, but this, the ozone in the water works great. And we sprayed it directly on the plants with the lights on, even, and they didn't even have one fucking problem with it. It's definitely interesting. I know Kevin Jodry mentioned in the past before carbon, they would put it in their exhaust vents out of their grow to try and cover the smell. But now, in my opinion, in modern times, most people have access to carbon filters for purifying the air, at least. So I think that's probably the better way. And I think there's even UV that doesn't let off ozone that I've been. I think there's one called like the air sniper. And there's a lot of similar devices that when they filter the air to kill like molds and other things in the air. Um, run it through some sort of UV light before they cycle it back out to the rest of the world. I wanted to get back to something that, that you asked um, <laughs> pure breeding Kyle about Kyle about as he was on the way out the door about the, the LED replacement and the, the heat and dealing with that with the grow. One thing that I, I think is, I don't know, just some, some interesting information. The amount of, of heat that your light adds to your grow space is almost purely a function of the power draw, regardless of the lighting technology that you use. If you have a, a thousand watt HPS or a thousand watt LED, um, regardless of how efficient the LED is, it's gonna end up, all these different things are gonna end up having almost exactly the same impact on the grow space in terms of BTU. The reason that LEDs um, are often sort of thought of as producing less heat is because they're now more efficient and you use less wattage for the same amount of light. And the, the heat is just an impact of the, the wattage itself. Um, the other thing that a lot of growers get all sort of twisted up about is the, the heat impact of the LED drivers. And the LED drivers produce a, a, about the amount of heat in terms of the overall heat as their efficiency rating. So if you have a driver, which is like 92 or 93% efficient, then it's only producing like 7% of the total heat or 8% of the total heat that um, is in that space. And removing the, the drivers from the space really don't have that big of an impact on sort of the, the heat added to the space. But 8% um, times like 10 lights and a smaller like grow up. I think if they could mount it outside, that adds up. And in, in my opinion, I, I would rather have the 8% outside if you can digitally or not digitally um, remotely mount the drivers outside of the grow space, which some people like to do. Some people actually, because LEDs 
Um, not that they run so cool because you're running so much less wattage. I agree with you. A watt is a watt as far as heat is concerned, because yeah. not that it's going to be hitting the canopy the same way. I think HIDs put the heat more directly on the plant where the LEDs tend to put it up off of their heat sink. It just radiates out, space. right? Yeah. Yeah. And all of the light eventually becomes heat too. So when we're talking about like reflective losses and all of that stuff, that that's all heat just scattered around the tent. And that's the same based on the light. And then there's something to consider in terms of um, wiring stuff far away, which is voltage loss. And that, you know, you don't really need to worry about it until about 50 feet. But when you're dealing with these sensitive diodes and drivers, I, I would err on the side of less wiring between the driver and the diodes yeah well if you're talking about a big light that produces like you know 3000 3500 um, btu removing the driver is going to knock that down from like 3500 to like 3200 it's not going and and that would be sort of an inefficient driver so maybe to, to like 3300 or something it's just if you're dealing with a heat issue, um, that's not going to get you a whole lot. It will potentially help. And if you can set them right outside, that's that's still totally fine. But a lot of growers become sort of like twisted up about it, thinking it's going to be a huge difference. And it's really, that was smaller than I, I sort of, my pre-analytic vision of what it would be. You're still going to be using a giant commercial HVAC if you're running like a commercial facility like Spartan Grown over at Mitten Canico or like... Um, there's a bunch of HLGs at Grandmaster levels grow up in Canada, and I'm sure he could remote mount those. I'm not sure if he did. I'm pretty sure they're all on the actual lights. So you just he accommodated for it by getting enough HVAC. So um, at that level, I think, like you said, they're not going to worry too much about seven percent. But it's something to think about, especially because like you could have like I see a lot of these facilities have multiple grow rooms, right? So yeah. at like Mitten Canico, you can walk down a hallway and there's like grow room after grow room. So you could have like your hallway be much warmer and okay, maybe the workers are a little uncomfortable, but that takes that 7% out of every single one of those rooms accumulatively. And you could wire it knowing that, okay, the drivers just need to make it to the end of this row and then they can all be mounted outside that room in theory. Well, just to play a little bit more devil's advocate, you don't want to put them outside in the sun. No, no, um, in, inside like the wall. Yep. And if you're so, putting them inside in a climate controlled space, you're still paying to, to cool that heat. Um, you're just paying it through your whole house air conditioner or something else, unless you're just letting it get hotter. And the efficiency of the drivers depend on their heat. So, you know, um, after realizing that the amount of heat that's added to the grow space is entirely a function of the wattage growers asked me why I measure the, the temperature of the, the drivers and the, the heat sinks in the, in my reviews of grow lights. And it's because that determines their efficiency. If you put the driver someplace hot and it's not efficient at, at dissipating that heat, the driver will be less efficient. Um, the same thing with a led panel that doesn't effectively dissipate that heat um, if it, if the LED diodes get too warm, they start running less efficiently too. That's an interesting point. It's like your computer, when it starts to run, uh, too hot, the fan kicks on or else it'll start to lag if you don't have a powerful enough. Yeah. Fan. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want to put your drivers someplace just like hot. It's not like you can't treat them like your compressor and your air conditioning where you just set it outside in the sun and let it get 5,000 degrees. They run um, at like a hundred something though, right? Like when you laser gun it, even at a controlled, like I have it running in my tent where yeah, the room is yeah, like, they're 80, always, and it's at a hundred. So like, if you just had the walk path 
Like you have your, I don't know, ink bird or whatever. Oh, over 100 controller. Fahrenheit. They're like at 50 to 60 degrees Celsius. So you like 120 to, you know, 130-ish in that range. So I'm saying it's a lot cheaper. It's like um, the walk path in between all the grow rooms. You could have that set to like 85, 90 degrees where you might want to have the grow room set to like 77 yeah. or something yeah. like that, where it's, oh, it's a little bit warmer. You can't because our res is there. You don't want your res to get warm. No, I, that's a great point. Yeah. This reminds me of how difficult it is um, to conceive of ways to effectively travel space or at least even have installations in space because your you heat go management up, has go to be. Hmm? Say, the the end result remote... of all this is the vast amount of uh, the vast majority of the heat is coming from the light itself. You can't sort of actually get rid of it. You got to deal with it in one way or another. You can make marginal improvements to some of these things, but the answer is you have a large grow space like that. You have to control climate. I mean, you need more, you know, BTU capability in your air conditioning or, yeah. or whatever it is to sort of keep up with that. When I do see the remote, they usually go up with them. They usually go like into an attic space or something like that. It's all homeostasis at the end of the day. There's no free lunches in physics for the most <laughs> part. The main thing is I just think LEDs compared to an HPS it's typically where the heat is being dissipated off the top of the heat sink where you could have exhaust fans set up basically exclusively to pull that hot air out uh, where yeah. the HIDs are kind of pushing that heat more down under the canopy. So you see, you're going to have a lot more moving uh, fans and, and that's usually a good idea anyway, to get the airflow around the plants, but yeah, uh, I totally agree. something to accommodate. In general, HID produces more heat than light or, you know, the efficiency is that they give off more heat with the light than the LED does, right? Well, it ultimately- Watt for watt, it's almost exactly the same, but but micromole per micromole, LEDs are much more efficient. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but watt for light watt, front. yeah. That's why you could use a 600 watt LED instead of a thousand watt HPS. And that's how you get your health. Right. Out. And you're going to get about 60% of the heat, but that's because you're using about 60% of the wattage. The wattage. You're still but getting the same light. amount of light potentially. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And a thousand watts is like 3,400 BTUs roughly or something like that. So yeah, that's what I was saying. That's where I got that 34, 3,500 number from thinking about a thousand watt light and thinking about with a thousand watt light, the driver is going to be producing less than 300 BTU. Um, the light itself is going to be producing like 3000 BTU. Um, so when you're thinking about, you know, how much you can gain, that, that's how much you can gain. I would say it's more like 700 to 750 from what the lights I've seen that Dr. MJ is reviewing, things like that. And the other consideration many people don't mention is a thousand watt HID typically doesn't pull a thousand watts. It pulls up to like 1150. Some people put it right on max and they yeah. push it, they overclock them. But even running at just a thousand watts setting, it pulls more than that from- Well, that's it. This is a great, this is a great because we evaluate LEDs and HPS differently. So HPS has always been described based on the, the output current from the driver, from the ballast. So a thousand watt HPS, pulls like 1100 from the wall, it loses about a hundred of them in the ballast, but it's giving a thousand watts to the bulb. Um, LEDs, we always talk about the wattage pulled from the wall, not the wattage from the driver to the fixture. Um, add to that the fact that most thousand watt LEDs, um, 
don't come in at exactly a thousand watts and they're on the other side they're like 960 980 990 something like that and yeah they're up against a thousand watt hps that's actually at about 1100. i think i've told it before but i'm reminded of my friend who had bought an, uh, a uv light and when we were setting it up i looked at the instructions and basically it said that you have to be very careful with this like massive industrial light they were trying to like do some sort of photo shoot or something uh, because like, it gets like, they're like, it gets a 300 degrees Celsius. And I was like, 300 degrees Celsius. They're like, oh no, like Fahrenheit. No, no, Celsius. Like that's massive. That's like, fucking <laughs> it was, it was not what they were actually supposed to be getting, but um, they wound up with this like massive UV industrial light and uh, you got to pay attention to those little details. What does a HID actually get to, like a thousand watt HPS? Because I know that's actually pretty hot. It's not three hundred Celsius, but it's it gets pretty hot damn hot. I know it was enough to burn you just by touching the the uh, hood on it. Well, even I, I see don't people know run what those bare the bare bulb grows where they hang them through the fucking alley of their grows between the plants, and that yeah. scares me so much because I just like I've been under them, close to them, knowing I've never actually burnt myself, thankfully. But uh, they, you could feel the intensity of the heat coming off those things. And if you bumped into one, I'm pretty sure that's scarring you. Yeah. So be careful, people. Second, third degree burns. Definitely not a good thing. It kind of reminded me for some reason. I don't know. There was something, I think, in Michigan. Some, like, garbage truck crashed into uh, mm -hmm. reveal to grow up. And it was HID. But it's, like, yeah. one of those things. Like, those guys that are doing, like, the non, uh, you know, permitted grows i don't want to call it illegal because i think it's kind of fucking a little bullshit that it's illegal to grow it if you've got a permit in certain spots non-permitted is a very nice way to, to refer to those I like that i like that i like that yeah not I permitted people yet. singe their hair on their lights i'm just saying not me i've been close to doing that i feel the heat on my head even from the leds from like a few inches away it'll start to give you a nice uh sunburn Oh, I get so hot testing these damn things. I mean, I literally, if I'm testing a five by five light all in one pass, it's like I'm sweating like a dog at the end of that, just sort of hovering over the light so much. There's a, there's a lot of heat and it'll eventually heat up our whole house if we have to let the, the LED run for a while. Um, so for sure, there's a lot of heat. It's nice for uh, people growing in those colder climates. You know, sometimes you don't have to add a heater, but the right light, it kind of gives you a little bit of homeostasis. It keeps the plant semi-warm. Not that it should be your only source. Always good to have accommodations for those uh, treacherous times when it gets super cold or super hot. Um, like that one question was asking about uh, environmental, I guess, budget constraint going from a small light to a bigger light. But I'm curious if uh, we have any more questions from the chat and just... Uh, uh, how Brandon's going over there? I haven't heard an update from you in a little while. You've been kind of quiet. Uh, how are things going over at Black Label and how are things going in the uh, grow box? Oh, I love the grow box. That's my favorite place to be at the farm right now. Uh, everything's going good, man. Uh, it's always constant, constant amount of work. I don't think people understand how, uh, how much work it takes. It's full time. And then, uh, you know, I'm still doing my Bokashi thing on the site too. So, um, but yeah, it's going good. We're, um, we are getting prepped for fall, which means we're getting ready to harvest our outdoor, which we actually didn't do so great on this year, but we learned a lot 
like wind plant <laughs> and making sure that we have supplemental lighting when we do plant, things like that. There's just uh, a lot of things we were unprepared for, especially the, the, the uh, insect pressure this year was insane. Grasshoppers and leafhoppers were uh, crazy fucking like numerous and uh so were caterpillars so um we know that next year at what times we need to apply certain biocontrols uh we did a lot of learning but we're doing good uh all the greenhouses are good i have i'm doing some testing on the last batch of seeds that i made which is the um i did the limelight f2 which is limerilla times mac v2 uh f2 of those i'm testing i have some gas v2 f2s which is a cut of gas that i found um cross that into mac v2 and then i back cross it uh into its sister testing those out i'm also testing out the black lime reserve uh times limerilla mac v2 and then i'm testing out the death breath s1 uh times limelight which is the limerilla mac v2 and then i have a bunch of new stuff that i'm being hunting that's exciting um how do you go about choosing your testers and do you have a established crew already or do you just kind of pick up new people each run and see who wants what you're working with no i'm testing it myself okay 100 percent in-house yeah i mean i want to make sure that um that everything's good before i let them go out to anybody else and then i can see how some other people go but i just want to make sure that um you know what i test is stable and i want to see if it's what i was looking for too because it's called it's pretty complex as far as like what i'm doing because i have i'm trying to i'm trying to isolate certain characteristics without doing any genetic testing or anything and i'm trying to pull kind of a certain certain uh, terpene profile um, out of the black lime reserve and there's some other things that i'm trying to get with the um, limerilla times mac v2 and so i'm doing some line breeding and i'm also i preserve the actual cuts that I bred with because I did an open pollination for the F2 on the limelight. And I have all of the females that I still used with that one male. So what I'm going to do is I'll use those cuts and I'll go into um, my black lime reserve stock. And I'll use different males on each one of those females. So I can try to so I can try to pull out and I and identify the characteristic of the males. And then I'm also going to do that with a couple other varieties where I take, I'm going to do the Limerilla V2. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the different male black lime reserves and hit the same clone. So I'll take a set of clones, I'll hit it with one male, I'll take another set of clones, hit it with a different male, right? And I'll keep those, you know, isolated. That way, when I test the progeny that came out of each of those flowers and not just those for that certain variety, but across other varieties, it'll give me a better interpretation of the characteristics that that male plant 
is going to be expressing, right? So if I use that, you know, like my Limelight 22 mail, I'm currently doing the, the GMO cherry pie. I'm going to pollinate that, the regular GMO. And so I'll have four different varieties that I've used that same mail on. So when I test those, I'll have a really good idea of the characteristics that my number 22 limelight male and the same thing with the black lime reserve males. When I, I'll have each male preserved and then I'll be able to decide which one I actually want to keep because I'll know which characteristics it's kind of bringing forth across a wide variety of different cultivars. It sounds really exciting. You got a lot going on and I definitely look forward to all of uh, the work that you're putting in over there that uh, Bicket OG or that GMO cherry pie looks really fire. It looks like a little bit of a later finisher, but a really heavy yielder. That greenhouse is looking fantastic. I just transplanted two limelights uh, into out of like one gals into their final sip containers today. So they're going to start vegging up now. Nice. They go crazy um, in those sips. They, yeah, they have cool. a really nice profile. So I get a lot. So there's kind of a small variance in the profile, but I get a lot of green, like Jolly Rancher, now and later, with uh, like a cereal milk, um, like profile. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. So, and some of them will be more like sour apple with a citrus overtone, but and then it'll have almost like a fun dip kind of. Like it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a like stale cereal. You know what stale cereal smells like. It, yeah. it had like all cereal that gets stale kind of has this general like stale cereal smell. Yeah. That's kind of like one of the profiles that it has. I love the frequent reference to cereal to describe taste. This is something that I can identify with in place. <laughs> also a strain fun called, dip for that matter. There's the a strain called cereal milk that uh, yeah. like cannabiotics out here in California, if you want some from the legal market, is probably a great representation in my opinion, both their concentrate and the flower. It has that milky flavor and it's got a great high. I'm a huge fan of that. Now, whereas, whereas all cereals may smell the same when stale, I would argue that different cereals affect the flavor of the milk in different ways. Um, so I'd be curious as to what cereal was in the milk. Oh, would be cool yeah, to I like that. I like for that. Milk and uh, yeah. a certain cereal in that milk. That would well, be. To give you some context, one of my favorite strains of all time is from, I think it's Alien Genetics. It's called Fruity Pebbles OG. Yeah. And that, that strain is like Fruity Pebbles in milk. It smells like a fucking bowl of, when I was a kid, they had Fruity Pebbles. I guess they changed the flavors. I looked into it because I wanted to like, what smells made up that profile? And I think it was like strawberry, but I don't, I don't want to name them because I don't have it offhand. But if you Google Fruity Pebbles in like the 90s versus Fruity Pebbles today, there's like a different combination of like four fruits that make it up. But there's also the milkiness. Uh, the strain cereal milk to me does not have any of like the sweetness from the Fruity Pebbles OG. It's more. I had like no milky. idea your Fruity Pebbles knowledge was as deep as your cannabis strain knowledge. Jack. That's. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I got a shout out to uh, Tiki Madman. He sent me a cross. Uh, he's calling it Cobra Milk, and so I brought that into work. And we're gonna we're gonna pop that there and, and phenol hunt it. I think it was. I don't know if it was five or ten seeds. It wasn't a lot. Maybe it was five, five or six seeds. That guy. Cobra Milk is a cool name. Actually, this reminds me of one of my favorite adjectives for like um, like a smell or a, a taste, and that's a farinaceous. 
I, I looked it up one time because I was playing a, a, or a storytelling a D&D campaign and I was trying to find a good word to describe like like stale mildewy kind of like musk of like a like a dungeon or something and uh or like maybe like mushroomy kind of even and farinaceous is and I'm just looking it up here uh it means consisting of or containing starch so I feel like that's pretty relevant so when I would just have a really good memory linked up to that word so when you guys started talking about it I was like oh yeah I love I love it when people use adjectives and uh, descriptors that actually help <laughs> it's reminiscent of the word dank for me like uh, a little bit as a similar, I guess, word to describe some of those mustier smells that can somewhat be appealing. But um, the milk one is curious for me. And the reason I was so interested in the Fruity Pebbles was when I found out like with Velvet Punch that it smelled just like uh, artificial grape flavoring to me, that it was methyl anthranolate. That sort of pushed me down the rabbit hole of like, well, maybe Fruity Pebbles is the same way. Like what were they using to flavor the Fruity Pebbles? And maybe I could work backwards. Like, is that in cannabis at all? If so, maybe that's what was in that strain. I knew there was a connection. I knew there was a connection there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Something tells me that the Fruity Pebbles cereal is like R6759, not like a turkey. Yeah, but they're actually based on those same. I mean, I can tell you. Red number four, blue number six. All I know is yeah, that day that shit was like fire. Fruity Pebbles. I've never tested my weed <laughs> and, and ha- for terpenes and had it come up with uh, red number five or yellow number, whatever. No, but it might have methylanthranolate if you looked for it, and that's the artificial grape. Yeah. And that's why, like, Maybe purple we punch. a little longer, we might. <laughs> and the so, yeah. So what's the... So what's the R... What's the, what's the value of methylanthranolate if I'm looking at it like a grape soda? What do, what do I look for? Is Eric going to say methyl and It, it would say question. artificial grape flavoring, or it will just say artificial flavors because there's loopholes, like how they can say fragrances when they mm. have like a, it's, they call it shampoo, but it's really like a detergent actually in a lot of the cases, but they can get, there's a loophole, like a fragrance loophole where they can put basically any ingredient into a, you know, beauty products and uh, shampoo. I think there are some disclosures about that. And they have to be things that are considered to be generally safe or whatever that that legal term is. But yeah, for those things that could be considered proprietary or trade secrets, they're not required to disclose. Although That's I understand grass. the reasoning for it. I've always been really, uh, <laughs> I've always found it very alarming that people can just like hide within like food products and stuff. Well, that was actually one of the things about the red food coloring that was made from cochineal. Um, oh, yeah, that's true. Cochineal is the original color fast red dye. Um, it was uh, it comes from southern Mexico, um, a, a little beetle that that lives in cactus that you can crush the beetle and it makes a color fast dye. Um, really they, they use that for all sorts of dyeing things still. Um, but they also use cochineal in food coloring and, and like vegetarians recently filed suit about that because that there was insects in the food coloring and that that violated their vegetarianism. It was in a bunch of the candies. Mm. It's um, it's called con- uh, confectioners uh, dye. Is, yeah. Vegetarians are the best sluice I've ever heard, man. That is some investigation, man. The vegans. Yeah. The ve- vegetarians and vegans for sure. They can definitely get down That's on impressive. that stuff. But yeah, I was, you know, kind of, I love, uh, it's coming up to Halloween time and that candy corn 
as terrible and gross and disgusting as it is, I actually enjoy the flavor and I just can't stop eating it when it's around. And I, found I like out that, peeps, so I won't talk much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll, some of that I'll trade you that all day. There. You're my best buddy then because I'll trade you all the peeps for all your candy corn, bro, all day. I am not a candy Well, you know, the trick about peeps myself. is you have to let them get stale. You open, oh, I open all the containers sounds, first and let weird. them get like this hard outer edge. Um, so after a couple of months, <laughs> pretty good. That reminds me of the weed I had that really gave off a nice stale peep smell. Yeah, stale peeps, man. That's, that's, that's <laughs> that sounds weird. There's a strain called uh, to try that out. They were like, and anything, one of the guys who was pushing it, but peeps is like, you know, how like Oreos and, uh, you know, gelato wedding cake all these like candy strains skittles all this stuff and so like i think he kind of made like a, a meme strain peeps and uh, one thing that i think is funny about peeps is if you go on youtube and look up peeps in microwave they have like mortal combat sounds in the background as these peeps like grow and explode it's uh entertaining so uh i don't th throw that out there for anybody who's high and has some time to enjoy some yeah, so somebody just there. mentioned the red dye issues in the chat i just want to say there's lots of different red dyes and the reason that they started using cochineal is because the other artificial red dye um caused problems caused health problems like cancers i think if i remember correctly and like yellow and yeah green caused some, and i think that that his his comment about lowering testosterone is probably related to that and not to the cochineal based dye. i think the only problem with the cochineal based dye is that you're eating insects you know, there are, uh, there are uh, allowances for insect fragments in uh, canned food. I'm sure that you're aware and many of the people yeah. are, but yeah. In, rat droppings are allowed in Milky Way boys too, a certain uh, percentage. That's true. That is true for all your needs. Hershey's. <laughs> this, the... <laughs> Don't ruin those micronutrients or uh, Reese's cups for me because those are the fucking bomb. <laughs> Yeah, I um I know it's like pretentiously in vogue to be like Hershey's is like like you know like F tier chocolate. Like I only have good, nice, high quality chocolate. But um um I was never a huge fan of it growing up either. I, I except for like the dark chocolate, I suppose. Sometimes Hershey's got it right with their special dark as a kid. Dark um, chocolate's easier to hide the rat poop in, man. Probably so. Yeah. <laughs> Supposedly hard for your heart. And I don't know, I, it, it's definitely a, you can't account for taste, right? Because I hate dark chocolate and I would prefer their milk chocolate shit with almonds or even like they had the, it's not even real chocolate, but white chocolate, the cookies and cream. Yeah. I know a bunch yeah, of owners out there love what that is shit. White, what is white chocolate? It's just I mean, sugar. It's disgusting. Uh, yeah, cream, it's sugar not, I don't believe there's any cacao in it, right? Cacao. Mm -hmm. There's chocolate chips in there though. So, I mean, it was like white chocolate with chocolate chips, the cookies and cream was uh, uh, it tasted like, I don't know, Oreos and milk in a candy bar. That you could I had a friend growing up that was allergic to chocolate and he could eat white chocolate. And my entire impression about white chocolate is the only reason you would eat it is because you would die <laughs> if you ate regular chocolate. That's like decaffeinated coffee or non-alcoholic beer. What is the purpose? Wait, <laughs> what's the difference? I was actually talking to my girlfriend about this the other day. What's the difference between white and dark chocolate? I don't is there like a bean so, that's white that comes from white, like no, white I don't think there's there's cacao. That's what I was saying. Um it is not chocolate. It's not based off cacao, which is not even a little bit chocolate. It's just parading as chocolate. Like you can make fucking meat 
out of like vegetables now. It's like, like yeah, it's, it's like beyond it's like beyond imitation beyond crab legs. Chocolate, beyond chocolate. <laughs> beyond chocolate is, uh, is a lot. White chocolate exposed. Yeah. That it's was fucking hilarious. I'm rolling over here on mute. That was that was I'm dying. That was fucking hilarious. That was the yeah. it's below uh, chocolate. <laughs> I don't think chocolate is the normal thing we talk about on this show. I'm maybe on the wrong podcast, but I think Spartan Grown, save us with some edible yeah. chocolate <laughs> yeah. references. I got my or I can depress you with the knowledge that uh, chocolate production is waning because of global reasons. Hey, hey, Matthew, can you give us an update on the coffee pests that are killing my favorite beverage? Uh, you know, not uh, not recently have I been looking into that sort of a thing. All right, um, good but enough. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I do know that my my favorite Bouveria Bastiana is uh, coming to the rescue in uh, in in those crops and also other like berry crops. Um, I think I was looking at some papers for uh, rhinoceros beetle. I think it was, and that's going after some um, some berry crops. I think also palm. But yeah, sorry. No, no worries. That's interesting. Yeah, I hope they take care of it. I think coffee, like cannabis, can be impacted by some of the inclement weather, like the uh, severe rains, flooding, uh, even hurricanes in some like uh, Caribbean islands. I know some of them grow uh, coffee. I know they're not necessarily the most known for it, but like Cuban coffee is uh, pretty well known. And there's a, a lot of the Central American countries that if they get hit certain times of year, so maybe I guess we could talk a little bit about trying to, I know Spartan Grown's got a killer ass plant outside right now. It's stinking up. I think it's Sparkle Face if I'm remembering correctly. looks yeah. like it's uh, crushing it outdoor. Uh, what would you do if it just started to pull one of those Michigan, you know, week long rains? Like it's not going to stop. Well, I have stakes out there that are supporting it. So I just stretch some plastic over it. You know, the stakes are taller than the plant. The stakes I got on purpose to be taller for that reason. So I could just throw a tarp over it. Hell, I could even put the little rings on the side of the tarp through the through the stakes and even put more stakes out if I wanted to. But still, that's got to be such like late into the, the flowering period. That's got to be such a, a rot risk to have like tarp over your plants in the soaking wet. Do you do anything else to would you do anything else to mitigate? rot? Well, I've already stripped the shit out of it because uh, I, I found the early stage of PM on some of my fan leaf. So I already did the. Uh, the leaf strip and treatment and um, if it comes up again if i see more pm i'll just probably do a uh, probably do a milk i don't like to do sulfur and flour so i'd probably do like the the diluted milk you know one part milk three parts water spray the leaves and hope for the best but when you're outside in michigan you just it's a 50 50 chance you're going to get the harvest anyway so you just no risk no reward man you just i don't that's why i have one plant and not 10 plants what about <laughs> just like a big blower fan like you know put on the ground well, just to move some air i'm not exactly doing it where i'm supposed to so i can't draw attention because i'm right in the middle of a neighborhood i was more concerned about somebody stealing your plant how nice and me too that's why i got a camera out there <laughs> yeah so i got a camera out there so at least i can see who my enemies are how many weeks <laughs> to harvest oh dude it's it's a ways yet unless it just finishes super fast this looks like i've got at least a month a ago. month right yeah it's pretty that, early flower. It's tough to say. It depends on the weather, how it's going to finish, right? One of the things that we did find, though, is the F1 generations of those gas V2s that we ran in the fields. 
they finished really fast. They're already ready to come down, so that's really nice for Oklahoma t- timing because I think it's about to start raining next week. Uh, did hurricane season pass already? Hurricane season is no, hurricane? not until November. Not until November, okay. Yeah, this is spring season. Huh? I think it's hurricane spring season, season. Is in spring. They're still oh, kind of coming right now. Like, there's one that's gonna be missing the East Coast just narrowly. It's like going along the side of the United States. So it's just yeah, depends, I think it depends on where you are. You know, it's the opposite. We talked about hurricane season and tornado seasons before, and we came oh, to the conclusion no, no, that tornado know. season is in the spring and hurricane season is in the That's fall. That's what it was. A different kind of gust of wind. That yeah, unless, things. unless <laughs> oh. you're in Florida and then hurricane season is like 10 months out of the year. Oh. Well, yeah, and in a, Oklahoma. A good question in chat that Matthew might be able to help with. Um, actually, oh. it, was a, it was a double help out. It was four plants A. Help, thank you for bringing it to my attention. But the original question was 650R Blackwater. Asking, is it safe to use Dr. Zymes in a sieve container water filled tube to kill root aphids? Thanks. My only input here is, is I think you would be. No. I think you would be um, missing the root aphids, man. I think you'd, you'd want to be. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's going to help with root aphids, but uh, I think you're going to be missing the root aphids if you're pouring it through the tube. You want to go through the medium. It's just not enough. You know what? Really- you need that coverage. You would need that coverage to, for it to be efficacious. And I also wouldn't say that it would be my first choice. Um, but yeah, I think that given that context of the question, I agree with uh, what Brandon was saying. The, the best solution that I have found is to rotate between Bavaria bassiana and uh, Pyganic natural py- pyrethrin and rotate bi-weekly with Steimernamophiltiae. That is extremely effective for any type, any problem that you, that is going to be in the soil, soil related things like fungus, gnat, larva, root aphids, um, other types of nematodes, even. I'm going to, I'm not sure that the other nematodes will affect them, but I'm definitely going to agree with Brandon here about um, those three products being kind of a nice, like, um, like cocktail rotation for like various um, subterranean problems. Yeah. Fungus gnats. That makes a lot of sense. And also like for the rice root aphids too, for the, the Bouveria and the pyrethrin. I'm a big fan of using those in combination or uh, separately those two. Dude, I, so what we found is that by using the spore concentrate, that's what I use, the stuff that I sell actually on my website, Bokashi Earthworks, I'll take, um, I'll use, I'll actually use 50% of the recommended uh, dosage of that Bavaria Bassiana spore. Uh, I do 200 liters and it usually treats 100 um, but because I'm also adding in the pyrethrin at a 5% ratio, it's not 5% total to volume of water, but it's 5% pyrethrin, which comes out to, man, I couldn't do the math right now, but it has dual efficacy because and you're coming at the problem from two different angles. So you're coming at it with something that's going to 
fuck up their nervous system. And then you're coming at it with something that's going to come in. And while they're already jacked up, is going to parasitize them. You know, so that is you get more efficacy out of both products when you use both of them in conjunction with each other. And then when I rotate with that, you know, some people have told me because I think they heard on the um, uh, uh, Kiss Organics podcast that they they didn't see something work in a laboratory setting in a petri dish where a root aphid didn't where the nematode didn't parasitize it but um i if we don't use the nematodes and we only do the treatment um bi-weekly with the um pyganic and buvaria bassiana we don't see the efficacy we we see higher insect pressure when we stop using the nematodes so and that's the only thing that we're using for that system. So I know that in the system that I'm using, that it's effective. It's or interesting. we wouldn't be doing it, you know what I mean? If it wasn't effective, we couldn't afford. Because, you know, when you're talking about scale and managing uh, IPM problems and having, you know, like, if oh, something isn't treatments. working, dude, you can't, you got to ditch it. I agree. Um, are you using guys, a blend or are you using just SF nematodes? Oh yeah, good I'm, question. I'm just using the standard NEMA. Okay. Felsier or yeah, but yeah. with a combo of the Pyganic and the it's like a no no no. So in rotation, it's a rotation. So it's biweekly on each. So Pyganic goes with Buvaria bassiana on every Friday, and then the next Friday we'll do 150 to 200 million of the standard name Felsier uh, uh, nematodes. In the past, I've said that it makes sense to me that the nematodes wouldn't really go after aphids. Plus, I haven't seen evidence of that in like research, but I'm not discounting what Brendan here is saying because although it makes sense because nematodes usually do better on larger hosts, um, generally speaking, uh, I wonder if there's some sort of like morbidity thing that's going on that allows the nematodes that disables the aphids in a way that maybe allows the nematodes to like penetrate the body mm -hmm. easier or what do you think recognize the them better as a host common... no, what, oh, I, I wouldn't know what the factor is I just know that it, we you know because of the type of no it's interesting and where I, I think at, that we always have insect pressure right there will always mm -hmm. be an insect pressure but it's always been about keeping at it ecological threshold where it's not affecting the quality the quantity of the harvests and so yeah. maintaining all of our ipms doing different things in veg and then starting you you know the, the, the inoculations that are continuous with by bi other biocontrols later on in flower and stuff like that is you know, it, if we don't do that, we'll get something. We'll see problems pop up. It's just a, it's just like fact of the scale that we're at and where we're at in the country. We're in farm country, you know. Yeah. Like, so, Brand, I had to give a chance to uh, Spartan Growing to you know jump out because he's going to be going over to the Michigan Grows Grow Show here in a little bit. So he needs to let his dogs out and refill his train, all that good stuff. I had one question before you go. Um, because I don't think I've been seeing it this year. Do you know if is Sequence doing his greenhouse operation again this year? And no. if so, uh, it, he's not. Okay. No. 
Uh, he's actually got his glass blowing workshop all built out, and he's actually the last two days uh, building. building he, he's already made a spoon pipe. One of I them. saw that. And then, uh, yeah, and so he's he's messing around with making the uh, little balls that you drop on top of uh, bangers. It's like the, in place of the uh, carb or whatever you call it, carb cap. So yeah, he's playing around with glass. I think this this time. It's cool. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was just curious because I remember last year he was able to in Michigan have a pretty successful uh, greenhouse operation. From yeah. It's like, and um, the other thing I wanted to comment on before, uh, just to wrap up Brandon and Matthew's point was maybe the Pyganic or the Bavaria weakened the aphid in some way that maybe that's why the SF nematode was able to then come take them out. That's um, but that's point. just my guess. I also want to say that it's possible that they do work. I haven't seen that experience. I've had experiences where they weren't able to work on their own but um that doesn't mean that there's you know the world is more complex than my own experience so i really appreciate brandon bringing that up that's a great point and uh, spartan where can the people find you before you uh head out yeah um everybody can find me at uh spartan growing on instagram or spartan growing at gmail as a email or at the michigan bros grow show is where i'm headed next in a few minutes and we have a guest jamie lowell who's a not only is he a cannabis attorney, he's part owner of the very first, well, I'll say dispensary because that's how you say it everywhere else in the fucking country. We can't call it that here. But the first dispensary is here in Michigan. And, um, and he's always been an advocate. He helped write the law, the medical law in 2008 that passed. So he's, he's a guy on our side for sure. And so I'm 100% going to be talking to him about this bill if I get a chance. Um, I've got it printed out right here next to me. And uh, I got a few questions for him anyway, so. I'm looking forward to it. Godspeed, brother. Good on you taking them to task for it. Good job. He's like our Dennis Perone. He's He's a good guy. He's like the one who made the earlier cannabis bill that all the people like that they don't want changed to. Like how our 1996, when we had Prop 215, everybody loved it. Dennis Perone made it great. Sounds like this guy had a medical mind uh, to help the patients who need it. So hopefully it'll be cool to have you talk to him. And people, check out Spartan Growing's Instagram because recently I don't normally push people's pages this much. He's been doing a lot of posts about that particular law, the House bill that's being introduced, breaking it down, the important points and key things that really should not be changed that will really cause a lot of problems for home growers, caregivers, everybody alike. Um, so definitely check out Spartan Grow's recent post on that because it's very important to the people of Michigan. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate that. I'm just trying to get the word out. Uh, I've already sent emails to all of the sponsors of the bill and my own local rep, and then I'm going to give them a few days to respond. I know it's the weekend now, but... I don't hear from him soon i'll be making phone calls and if i don't get responses there i'll be down to their offices even if i gotta travel so cheers guys i gotta get running your love spartan keep up the good work love. good night Please. thanks for hanging out peace out spartan always good to have spartan on he can also be found at mitten can co uh, his commercial operations he's a great contributor to this show always uh, happy to have him anybody who's curious i've been puffing on this is actually a battery for a vape pen it looks kind of like a little wooden piece but it's got a little button on the top for vapes it's not an actual pipe uh, better than i guess the regular old battery my wife got this for me so uh, shout out to lady greenstock but um, we've got about 10 minutes left and i guess we could go into final thoughts before we do our uh, shout outs so jack uh, I don't know if I said it on air last week, but after we, at some point, I said we, I want to do that stealth seed giveaway. And uh, so everyone in chat, um, I decided that the first three people who commented live in today's chat, I would give the opportunity to get a free pack of Amy Aces. And 
those three people were Crack Babies, DWC, Smart Poker, and the Jeffro 42069. Great so, fucking people to win, dude. That's awesome. If those three guys want to hit my DM on the IG, and I'll get you out a pack of Amy Aces and some slaps. And that's just for appreciation for you guys showing up. And I'm glad it was those three. Smart Poker is always one of the first ones. And I'm kind of sorry that Real Red Hairs wasn't one of the first commenters. But you know what, Real Red Hairs, if you hit me up and you want a pack, I'll get you one too. Because you're always usually one of the first ones. So we'll do that too. Our love. That's awesome, man. And cheers to the winners. That is epic. The American one. Uh, thank you so much for doing that for the community. It's an amazing thing. I will warn anybody, if you grow Amy Aces, have a good carbon filter because mine has stank right through my fucking carbon filter right now. I need to replace the cover. Maybe I have to replace the whole carbon filter entirely. Uh, it's not a huge deal where I'm at. I smoke enough that my place stinks like herb anyway. And uh, most of my neighbors actually grow. So it's not a huge deal around here. But uh, what is it reeking like? Oh man, so much different stuff. It's like, it's got rubber notes. It's got some like shoe, like new shoe rubber, but also like, like stinky foot. Uh, it's got a lot of lemon citrusy notes in there and yeah. a little bit of fuel. It's got, it's a very complex aroma. And I'd say it's probably three weeks away from chop at this point, maybe two, three weeks out. But I'm, I'm glad funky. you had so many because I can never pinpoint it down really. And it's like all of those things too. Yeah. All right. Good. Excellent. She's a vigorous, vigorous plant from uh, start to finish, and it definitely over exceeded my expectations with how much it grew, but that's a good problem to have. I, I'm going to have a lot of amyases to be medicating on, and I look forward to trying it here in a few weeks. So uh, whoever won, uh, Crack Babies WC was the one that I remember, Smot Poker. Shout out to Smot Poker. He's got a YouTube channel, and he's on Instagram. And seeing he's not showing his face, but he's got like the mask on, and he's doing that. Uh, shown how to transplant he's been a long time cocoa for cannabis community member yeah he's been showing me uh, how he how he tops his plants he did the first top second top i think that's third and last one was a recent one yeah he's excellent and just so everybody knows the jeffro 42069 and real red has is uh on the list so there you go all good people and uh if we could we'd give you all seeds and i'm sure over time eventually some of you will get some from us because as we make them we've got more than we need and we're happy to share um my one contingency for anybody is within the u.s i still haven't figured out the whole international stamps thing yet but uh, my post office keeps telling me no <laughs> that it's not a thing but i think you can order them online so i might go with that approach uh for the international people i tried like this one person a family member in canada four times they got intercepted every single time like even when i sent it to like a different name different person uh it was just a whole debacle so didn't have good luck with that and there's also like they want you to fill out this shit to give a whole bunch of personal information if you don't use international stamp so i don't know uh getting seeds to people can sometimes be more difficult than uh people expect but it's worth it i know a lot of people are able to do it so uh i'm happy to see people getting them brandon's got a lot of seeds out there it's cool to see some people growing his gear now i've seen a lot of uh the American ones, Amy is all over the Instagram, far and wide. You've made uh, that all the way out to the UK. There's some grow rooms that are monocropping it, uh, which was going to be the case for me as well. Dude, when, when I first ran that, I was like, this plant, I, I knew the mother. I think the mother, because I love the mother, but not. I don't know if everybody else in the world would love it as much as I do. But when I grew out that Amy is the first time, I'm like, man, this shit is legit. And then I was like, I, am I breeding? You know, I want, I made a whole bunch of other ones. But I figure if I put that one out there, some they'll find something they love about it. Every single person that grows it is not disappointed. So I figure I'm going to just try and pump that one. 
make it the next blue dream in the world, and then I'll have my name out there. <laughs> Tao's Amy Aces, and then you'll uh, get the uh, cookie recipe that you can, you know, the American ones, famous cookies, keep you young forever. Reverse the aging process. Yeah, now that New York is starting to slowly open up a little, it should be uh, much better uh, better for me. Yeah, that's all. So, yeah. I saw I somebody in the chat saying they were going to make a Taumatic or something, and that was kind of funny to see. That is good. You could uh, cross Amy Aces into some... Well, actually, it's funny. There are people that are doing breeding work with like some of our creations and stuff. Like I, I sent out um, a Velvet Punch tester to new bud, new bud tender and they're crossing it with some of uh, kyle pure breeding's work so we're gonna have a velvet punch cross with i think like new england rock candy or some cross so it'll be cool to see uh one of our listeners has gotten gear from both of us and put them together and get to see the collaborations with that and a lot of people that dm me are talking about mixing uh kyle's work with autos or even some uh, brandon's work with autos and the american ones with autos so it'll be cool to see uh, people experimenting and trying to see the whole expression of the genetics out there. Um, I'm really happy to see people breeding with stuff. I know not everybody feels that way, but I think it's cool to mix it up and give people access. Like seeds can be really expensive. So once you make your first set, you could literally just be set for life. If that's all you wanted to grow, typically people want to have more variety, but um, you can get a bunch really quick and uh, just know that you have the power to do it yourself at home. Just like anything else. That's what the cheap home grow is all about is uh being able to save yourself some money if, if you choose to and regular seeds are not as big of a you know difficulty as a lot of people make them out to be so i just want to throw that out there and give uh, people like the american one and others who breed regs a chance um one question for brandon are you your recent seed drops have they been regs or are you doing fems no they're all regular using male male stock that i'm picking out of what i kind of like the best good stuff well brandon i want to give you a chance to give your final thoughts and shout out sure yeah um i'm always happy to come and join the rest of the panel and uh thanks for having me as always yeah, for anybody who isn't familiar with any of my work you can find me at, on instagram at rust r-u-s-t dot brandon and uh you can find uh, uh, link to my company, Bokashi Earthworks, just like the logo right there. Uh, is sell some, you know, my, a lot of different microbes and some biofertilizers, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I'll see you guys all next weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Next up, Dr. MJ. Hey, everyone. I enjoyed the show today. Um, thanks for all the interesting questions from chat, uh, interesting contributions from the rest of the panelists. Um, I hope everybody enjoys our harvest moon. Um, I think the full moon is tomorrow. Um, but this is our harvest moon. If any of you are harvesting now, it's really appropriate. Um, we got a PTGC giveaway coming up that I wanted to let everybody know about. We're giving away one of the new Photon Tech SQ 300 watt um, grow lights for a 3x3 tent if you're in the PTGC. And it's not like technically too late to get in the PTGC, the Plant Training Grow Challenge at Cocoa for Cannabis. Um, you can sign up for free or if you're in it, just update your journal and we're going to do that drawing on the first. Um, 
I am also got some YouTube stuff coming out. So subscribe to my YouTube. I'm going to be documenting my grow coming up. Uh, I'm going to be germinating tomorrow and I'll do my first video sometime shortly after that. Um, so cool. I had fun today. Girl love everyone. Thanks again for joining and definitely check out his YouTube. Very professional content uh, growing really fast. And I'm happy to see you getting that content out there to the people because there's so much misinformation, especially with lights and uh, cannabis growth science and how to grow in cocoa and things like that. I see a lot of people getting misguided and I can help them out through their uh, struggles and failures by pointing them to cocoa for cannabis simply. So it's nice to have a stable resource and a great YouTube channel to be able to send to the people too. So thank you so much again for joining us, uh, Dr. MJ. And next up, we got Aaron the Grower. Thanks, Jack. Um, appreciate it. This was a, a lot of fun tonight. Um, did a lot of learning and listening. Um, I do want to, since we're talking about breeders a little bit, I wanted to give a shout out to Creature Ravine Gardens. Um, that's the weed I was trimming on earlier, this Baja Blast that really I don't think anybody's seen, but this is uh, one of these underrated growers that really, or breeders rather, that are just putting out fire, kind of like everybody's sleeping on it. Um, Anyway, I'm ATG Acres, Aaron the Grower, that you can find me on Instagram at ATG Acres or atgacres.com if you want to get yourself a plant packer, which is the uh, best way to ship your clones around, um, and, uh, or ATG Acres on YouTube. So good to, good to be here every week. I'll see you guys next week. Always happy to have you, and I agree. Best way to send clones, for sure. Um, and I couldn't echo more the sentiment on you know growing seeds from smaller breeders because uh, in my experience, they've been the most fire. I've been a little bit nervous because everybody wants to try the hot strain or the most popular strain, but then you give somebody who's got a lot of passion and dedication. And if you look at their work and you see like, that looks impressive to me. Uh, Tiki Madman was mentioned earlier as well. Another smaller independent breeder, but I've been seeing he's been making killer ass selections. So I think people should trust the small breeders and give them a shot more often. And uh, speaking of one, the American one, uh, I'll give you your final thoughts and shout outs before we go to Matthew. I'll say I saw ATG Acres post of that Baja Blast. That shit looks like indoor. I don't know. I think it's partly ATG Acres growing capabilities. It <laughs> look amazing. But yeah, that shit certainly looks legit. So I'll throw that out there. And Thanks, yeah, excellent show tonight. And uh, happy to be here. I'm the American one on the YouTube and the American one underscore with 18, underscore 18s on the IG. Most of you know where I would find me. And uh yeah, thanks again, Jack, for hosting. I see we're running a little late. So peace out all. Have a great week, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much, the American one. Always good to have you. Uh, reminder to everybody, before you head out, smash that thumbs up button and uh, pass it last to Matthew Gates. Yeah, I really enjoy the conversations. I like that we talked about a lot of kind of heady topics like physics and, and uh, chemistry and a bunch of cool stuff like that. So um, again, if you are interested in some IPM information, I like to make that as freely available for people at all scales, though I am a consultant professionally. And you can find that information in my YouTube channel, Xenthanol. Also, my Twitter and Instagram accounts are at SyncAngel. And remember, I have a video about how aphids detect, locate, and uh, feed on plants, even the healthy ones. Great way to lead people into maybe checking out some of that content on the Synthanol YouTube and uh, maybe consider that $1 a month uh, donation to the Patreon so you can get access to the Discord channel, which gives you direct access to Matthew and all of his wonderful IPM knowledge and experience. So uh, definitely consider doing that. I link the Patreon and most of people's information down below in the YouTube information after. It takes me about a half an hour to type up a general idea of what happened on the show and uh, everybody's contact information. So if uh, that helps people out, then hopefully that's a good thing and I'll continue to do it. 
and hopefully get this up on the podcast in uh, about 30 minutes for those who listen on the podcast afterward. Thank you, everybody who listened live here on the YouTube. Really appreciate you. Thank you all to my panel members for showing up for another week. I always appreciate your input and uh, learn a lot every single week. So I'm going to keep coming and enjoying doing this with all of you guys every week. So look forward to next week. You can find me at Jack Greenstock, as you can see behind me here with my little logo uh, on Instagram primarily. You can also email jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter, Jack underscore Greenstock. Those are all the places that you can find me other than the show. So thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, This is Jack Greenstock signing out. Grow a love, everyone.